Max McLean. Uh, from time to time during this year, as we go through the Gospel of Mark, we will uh, have some of his dramatic reading. He has memorized the Gospel of Mark, and in one standing, he does that uh, to an audience uh, and a uh, very powerful way of receiving the Word of God. Of course, the Gospel of Mark was written to be read and heard orally, and so it's good to do that from time to time. Before I mention and get into the Gospel of Mark, I just want to thank the Garden Hill team for sharing, and uh, I want us to be praying that God would direct our, our thoughts and our steps uh, as to what God is calling from our church in the coming year. Uh, we see that in many parts of these places where there's poverty and stuff, there's such a need for mercy ministry. Mercy ministry is always more well-received and, and easier to give in some ways. It's uh, justice ministry that also we need to pray about. What does it mean to do justice? And so uh, may God lead us as a church and may God lead the Pathway Camp Ministries as we, as we partner together with them. I'm excited about the Gospel of Mark. And uh, you would have received in your bulletin um, these green pieces of paper. You can take notes each Sunday with uh, the sermon notes on one side and other study notes on the other side. And so I'd encourage you to follow along this morning. And today will be mostly introduction, but we are going to start into chapter 1 as well. We have the banners at the front of the sanctuary because uh, we believe that they're the most important, uh, reflecting the most important question and answer. In fact, the most important question that Jesus asks his disciples throughout the Gospel of Mark is found in chapter 8, where Jesus says to them, Who do you say I am? Who do you say I am? And uh, Peter's answer was, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. That still remains, I want to say, that still remains the most important question that is being asked today, that Jesus asks us today. He's asking, who do you say I am? He's not asking, what statement of faith do you sign? What, what denomination do you prescribe to? And so on. He's asking, who do you say I am? And, and he doesn't even say it in your head. He's saying in your life, in your living out of your faith, who, who are you reflecting that you believe about me? That's what we're looking at. And we, we pray that the Gospel of Mark will, will help us to answer that question more clearly for ourselves. Today we begin in the Gospel of Mark, and, and um, the, the term is called, the literature is called a gospel. And the word gospel at the beginning when, when uh, we see the New Testament pages open, at that time, the word gospel was a Greek word that referred to good news, simply. If a general had won a, a battle somewhere and, and some messengers had been sent to tell the people about it, that messenger was bringing gospel. He was bringing good news. That's what it simply meant. But of course, as, as the, the, the Lord came upon the scene in the New Testament, as God became man in Jesus Christ, as he grew up, as he, as he had his public ministry, and as he announced what God was doing, as he died on the cross and then rose to new life, and as the apostles began to preach in the power of the Holy Spirit, the way that gospel was defined was through what Jesus did. The gospel is all about Jesus Christ, about God invading the human story with his story. And so gospel became known as uh, Jesus Christ. There are four gospels in our Bible, you know them. In the New Testament, begins with Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And uh, we won't take the time to go too much into depth of the distinctions. But I do want to say that a gospel is not simply a biography of Jesus' life. That is not the, the purpose of the gospel. That's not 
what Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John had in mind when they wrote. Each of them had in mind a distinct audience that they were addressing their message to, and each of them had a purpose in mind of what they wanted to convey to that audience. It's interesting that in Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 10 in the Old Testament, and in Revelation chapter 4, verse 7 in the New Testament, the same vision of these living creatures are given to these two men. And they're a vision with four faces that are viewed on these living creatures. One is the face of a lion, one is the face of an ox, another the face of a man, and the fourth the face of an eagle. And many people conjecture that, that the four Gospels that came into the canon, the, the, the Bible that we have, the Scriptures, come or reflected in those four images. And Mark is given the face of the lion in its depictions in art throughout the church age. And it's because it was the first gospel written, and it's because many saw John the Baptist as the lion that roared in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Because that's the way Mark's gospel opens, is John the Baptist. Matthew is given that of a man, Luke, an ox, and John the eagle, because he soars high in the divinity of Jesus as he expounds on the symbols that are, are present. And so that's an interesting way of thinking of the four Gospels. Let me begin then by sharing with you some of the important aspects, quick facts and different details about the Mark Gospel. Most scholars agree that the author of Mark's Gospel is a young man by the name of John Mark, a cousin to Barnabas, not an eyewitness to Jesus. Very important to understand that. Mark was not likely an eyewitness of Jesus. He's younger um, and so, instead, he was uh, an eyewitness and a friend and companion of many who were apostles and eyewitnesses of Jesus. And we know that from Acts chapter 12, his mother was a praying woman in the church in Jerusalem. We know in chapter 13 that he went on the missionary, first missionary journey with Paul and Barnabas. We know that he was in Rome with Peter, according to Peter's letter. We know that, uh, in fact, many historians in the early church give credit him with this gospel and say that it's really a reflection of the preaching and teaching of the apostle Peter. Eusebius um, is one of them. Papias and Irenaeus and others, they say that John Mark was the interpreter of Peter to a wider Gentile and Roman crowd, taking that which was spoken in Aramaic and translating it into Greek for those that would read it. And so... We, we, we uh, follow along with that as John Mark, the, the author. Mark is the first gospel written, it's the shortest gospel written, and it's the most chronological of the four. Not perfectly, but it's the most chronological of the four. Mark contains no genealogy of the life of Jesus. It contains no birth narrative. Instead of having that like Matthew and Luke do, or John when he expounds on the Logos, which was from the beginning and so on, Mark jumps into the action. He jumps into the scene. He begins by John the Baptist exploding in the wilderness and announcing the coming of the Messiah, Jesus, the Son of God. Six of the 16 chapters in the Gospel of Mark are reserved for the very last eight days of Jesus' time on earth. Okay, six of the 16 and there's only one quote from the Old Testament. In all of the gospel, the only quote from the Old Testament is a citation taken from Isaiah and Malachi in chapter 1, verses 2 and 3 of Mark, which you heard read earlier. 
And so clearly, uh, the audience is not a Jewish audience that Mark is writing for, but rather a Roman and Gentile audience, for which the genealogy of Jesus would make no difference. If he is the line of David or some other line, what does it make a difference for? And so on. And uh, did not know the law and the prophets, and so the audience didn't need to have all kinds of Old Testament citations. In many ways, when we think about this, it's a very good gospel for us to be studying and for us to be using in our witnessing to others who are not Christians today. For in, indeed, we, de- we do live in an age which is largely ignorant of the Old Testament, of Jewish history, and so they may not care that Jesus was of the line of David. It's important for us to study the rich, incredible fulfillment of prophecy that Jesus shows us from the Old Testament. But for someone who is coming to Christ, it was not necessary according to Mark. Let me share with you some of the key words and ideas that we find predominant in the Gospel of Mark. One of the most astounding ones is the word immediately. The word that is translated at once or immediately. Did you know that 42 times that is listed in Mark's Gospel? And in the entire New Testament, in the entire New Testament, that Greek word is only found 56 times. 42 of them are found in the shortest Gospel. What is it that Mark's trying to convey to us? He is conveying to us that I want to be about telling the story. Let's move on. It's an action Gospel. Mark is more interested in the works of Jesus than the words of Jesus. And so, immediately is found 42 times. The word gospel is found eight times. Son of God, we will refer to later, found uh, three times specifically and other times referentially. Authority is mentioned 10 times. Kingdom, 20 times. The word faith or believe, 21 times. The word follow, 18 times. The word road or way, 16 times. And this idea of wanting, what do you want me to do for you, Jesus says, 24 times this idea is conveyed, this word. In fact, for being the shortest gospel, it's very interesting that Mark employs over 70 words that are not found anywhere else in the New Testament. Koine Greek, not a, a, not a language with a lot of vocabulary, but 70 words Mark uses that are not found elsewhere in the New Testament. This is a fresh gospel. This is something that Mark has to say that it has an audience of a Roman Gentile persuasion that he wants to know this Jesus is the Son of God. Let's let's look at a few special features. I've already mentioned that Mark is more more emphatic on the works of Jesus than the words of Jesus. And so huge sermons which we find in John or in Matthew, they're not included in the gospel of Mark. So much so that, in fact, 19 miracles are included in Mark, but only five parables, okay? So he was more interested in the action and the works of Jesus than the words of Jesus. There is also the words action-reaction might be something you want to write down. It's as though Mark, as he's writing the gospel, has a cameraman right beside him. And he zooms in on the the life of Jesus. He zooms in on a miracle, a healing, something that's taking place. But as quickly as he zooms in on Jesus doing something miraculous, he zooms out and he takes a look at the crowd. That's what he does. Over and over again, that happens. 
Mark zooms in on Jesus and quickly he goes back to the crowd because Mark was as interested as, at the response that Jesus was getting as he was at what Jesus was doing. And so action, reaction is found. Uh, more than 20 times the, the crowd responds and the Greek words that are used are amazement and astonishment. 20 times or more. That's the way people respond to Jesus. You have to ask yourself when you study the Gospel of Mark this year whether you even know Jesus yet. That's the way people responded to Jesus. It's a discipleship kind of story as well. Jesus gets alone with his disciples 20 times in the Gospel of Mark. 20 times we're told he got off alone with the disciples. He wanted them to, to know, hear, do something together. Another thing that's a distinctive more of Mark than others is this thing called the messianic secret. And what that means is that there's an emphasis on the first half of the Gospel of Mark for Jesus not to be telling people, not to tell anybody else who he is. And, and you kind of confuse it, scratch your head. Whoa, whoa, aren't you wanting to be made known? But at the beginning of his gospel, he tells people and evil spirits, he says, don't tell anybody who I am. Well, they go out and they blast it to everybody anyway, but ten times in the gospel of Mark, that's what Jesus says. And the best we can conjecture is that Jesus knew that if it got out there like wildfire too early, he's not even going to get through his three years of public ministry. They're going to crucify him after five months. And so he said, don't tell anybody. And so there's the messianic secret. There's the theme of conflict in Mark. Mark is a book of conflict and suffering. There is the book, uh, the, first of all, the, the, the time of Mark writing it. Uh, somewhere between 55 and 60, 65 A.D., perhaps, when there were Roman emperors like Nero that were persecuting Christians. It was being convenient to blame the Christians, uh, things on the Christians, or to take the Christians and, and burn them, or to, to make some public display of lions eating Christians, and so on. This was a time of persecution, and so there was conflict with the Romans. There was also conflict between Jesus and the Jewish leaders that we see throughout the Gospel of Mark. But more than anything, Mark wants us to see that there is this incredible cosmic conflict between God and the devil. And uh, Satan is manifest many, many times in the Gospel of Mark. Right in chapter 1, when the first evil spirit encounters Jesus in his public ministry, he cries out and he shrieks, Have you come to destroy us? You see, because the evil spirits knew exactly that question, Who is Jesus? And they knew that indeed Jesus had come to destroy this evil kingdom that Satan had set up. And so conflict and suffering. There are also personal encounters that we see in the Gospel of Mark almost 20 times, personal encounters with individuals. There's a turning point at chapter 8, and we'll come to it and we'll see what it is. It's, it's at the Peter, confession of Peter as the Messiah, the living God. We'll see a turning point take place. And uh, the Son of God is a theme that I said earlier is emphasized and it's, it's like a bookends on the Gospel of Mark. He starts in verse 1 by saying the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And then almost like a, a, at the end of the, the story, when Jesus is crucified and the Roman centurion is leaning against the cross of Jesus. 
and he's looking up at the man that now is dead on that cross, and his last words are, surely this was the Son of God. A Roman centurion, someone that would have authority in the eyes of the audience to whom Mark was writing. And in between those two bookends, we see the Son of God being emphasized. At one point, an evil spirit shrieks, we know who you are, you are the Son of God. At times, the, the Father God shows up, like at His baptism or at the transfiguration, and a voice thunders from heaven, you are my Son, with you I am well pleased. And, uh, and other times when the, the Son of God is being mentioned, Jesus Himself answering the high priest at His trial says, I am as you have said, and so on. The authority of God shown in Jesus' power to teach is seen. We'll see that today as we look at chapter 1. To heal the, the power over demonic forces. Mark, in, in, in many ways, is trying to convey, every time we turn a page in Mark, Mark is trying to convey, this Jesus that we're talking about is the Son of God, and He has the authority to do whatever He wants, wherever, and whomever He wants with. There is nowhere on planet Earth that Jesus could not walk, and wherever He walked, He could say, Mine, Mine. It belongs to me. I have authority over it. So they're out in the ocean, or in the Sea of Galilee, I should say, and the disciples say, who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? You see, every time we turn a page in Mark, Mark is trying to convey Jesus is son, as a son of God. He's Lord. He is authority over everything. And he finally says at the end, ah, he has authority even over death. And so... Take a look at your green sheet of paper. You'll see that there's a purpose statement that I've written there. Uh, I believe that is a succinct uh, description of the purpose of the Gospel of Mark. Mark's purpose is to present the person and power of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, to a Gentile Roman audience so that they would hear the Gospel and put their faith in Him. Well, with that brief introduction, um, let's jump into chapter 1 and and as we open the pages of Mark chapter 1, I want you to notice what is being said about Jesus Christ. As I said earlier, the very first witness that we see in Mark's gospel are not the angels announcing the birth of Jesus, like in Matthew and Luke, but rather John the Baptist, the messenger, the one that the Old Testament wrote about the Elijah of God. And so in chapter 1, verse 4, we read, So John came. John the Baptist came. This eccentric but very impressive man of God. He came, it says, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. People needed to be prepared for the coming of Jesus. You see, a king did not just show up somewhere with, without an announcement, without someone preparing the way for him. And so John was called the Elijah, the forerunner of God, that would prepare the way for Jesus to come. And the people had to be ready for when he came. If he would have lived in the 21st century, I think that John the Baptist would have been on YouTube all over the place. John the Baptist would have been texted and twittered about all over time right now if he'd have lived in this century. 
He'd have had YouTube videos going viral about him going into the Jordan River, people weeping and confessing their sin, and him baptizing lines and lines and lines of people from all over Judea. That's what John the Baptist would have been if he'd have come in this century. And just as quickly as he was a pop folk hero, he would have disappeared from the scene as he was imprisoned and then beheaded. Because you see, John the Baptist's purpose was not to draw any attention to himself, but to prepare for Jesus Christ the Messiah to come. And he was glad to then disappear from sight. And so he says in John chapter 3, verse 30, his testimony, he said, he must become greater and I must become less. That was what John said. And so he began to preach. And if you'd have made the trek out into the desert at that time, you'd have found this weird, eccentric man that wore camel's hair, ate locusts and wild honey. And as strange as he might have been, the power of God was upon his preaching. And people, when they arrived there, might have gone just out of curiosity, but when they arrived there, they were cut to the heart. And they began to weep over their sin. And they began to cry out to God. And it says that he preached a baptism of repentance, which means turning from sin. You see, John was not telling the whole gospel story. John was preparing the people for Jesus who would tell them the whole gospel story. And people went out in droves. You know, there's supposed to be something of John the Baptist in every one of us. Because before anybody ever meets Jesus Christ, they first of all meet the messenger of Jesus that's telling someone about Jesus, that's preparing a heart, that's out in the wilderness of the world crying like, like a lone voice, prepare to meet your maker. Before anyone ever meets Jesus, they meet a John the Baptist. You and I are meant to be John the Baptist to somebody else, to prepare their hearts to meet Jesus. So verse 4, we read that John came. And then in verse 9, we read that Jesus came. And Jesus came from Nazareth, where he grew up and he worked, where he had his public uh, little carpentry shop along with his father. And he came to the Jordan River to be baptized by John. And we, we should not be surprised that at his baptism that, that his father shows up. His father shows up at his baptism, and the Holy Spirit shows up too. The, the entire Trinity shows up at Jesus' baptism. And the Holy Spirit comes, and he shows up like a dove, like a beautiful, spotless dove descending upon him. And the father shows up with a thundering voice from heaven, This is my son, whom I love with him. I am well pleased, audibly. Everybody could hear it. And then as immediately it says in, the, in Mark's gospel, as soon as he comes out of the water, the Spirit sends him out into the wilderness. Now we get a lot more detail on that from Matthew and Luke. But Mark's not interested in the detail of what happened in, in, in the wilderness, how he overcame the temptations of the enemy after 40 days of fasting. Mark wants to get on to the gospel. Mark wants to get on to the story, Jesus. And so he moves on quickly. What a time for Jesus this would have been. The 30 years of waiting was over. Can you imagine? Finally. 30 years. Finally. 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 The Son of God can do what He came to do. 
And he stands up one day and he says, the time has come. The time has come. What a time of waiting this would have been. And uh, so verse 15, that's what he says. John came, verse 4. Jesus came, verse 9. And Jesus stands up, verse 15, and says, the time has come. And the word that's used for time there is not the word chronos, where we get our word chronological, like the hour on the clock, but rather kairos. The kairos is the special time. Kairos is the word that Paul used in 2 Timothy chapter 4 when, when he says, the time has come for my departure. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. I shared that passage over two weeks ago when my dad was about to die. And I said to him, Dad, your time has come. Everybody has a time. It's come for you. It's okay. The time has come for your departure. That word time means that it's an ordained time. Ecclesiastes 3.1 says there is a time and a season for everything under heaven. There's a time to be born and there's a time to die. There's a time to meet Jesus and there's a time to grow in Him. The time came. Can you imagine after 30 years of, of silence, Jesus stands up in Galilee. The first words out of His mouth is, Finally, the time has come. The kingdom of God is near. The kingdom of God is near. Jesus, after waiting so long, walked into Galilee and he cried out, Ready or not, here I come. Some people were ready and some were not, just like today. As you and I present Jesus, some are ready and some are not. My prayer is that we will be the people ready. My prayer is that the Gospel of Mark that we're going to study this year will be the, the moment in time, a kairos time for many individuals when they'll see Jesus. You see, Peter and Andrew had their kairos time. Mark talks about it right after that in chapter 1. Jesus goes, first of all, to the Sea of Galilee. And he's walking along the beach, and he comes across two fishermen, Peter and Andrew, and he says to them, the time has come. The time has come for you. Come, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And they got up and followed him. The time had come. He walks a little further on the beach, and he comes across the sons of Zebedee, James and John, and he says, the time has come for you too. Come, follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. The time had come, and they followed him. I believe the time's going to come for some of us this year. Some people in your life that you want to know Jesus, the time's going to come this year for them. This fall, we have various people already asked the deacons about being baptized. We're going to hear them get up into this pulpit. They're going to share their story about when the time came, when Jesus walked into their lives, what it is that took place for them to awaken to Jesus. I'm looking forward to hearing every story, incredible grace that God gives to every individual that he walks into their lives and saves. The time came. The time came. Verse 4, John, John came. Verse 9, Jesus came. Verse 15, the time came. And you could pretty much summarize the rest of the Gospel of Mark with, and then the people came. <laughs> and they came, and they came, 
And they came and they never stopped coming. In fact, by the time we get to the end of chapter 1, Mark is having to summarize what's going on in the first days of Jesus' ministry. And so in Mark chapter 1, the last verse, it says, Yet the people still came to him from everywhere. They still kept coming. You see, after the Sea of Galilee, Jesus walked into a little town, a little sleepy village, a little town called Capernaum on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. He walked in there and he walked into the synagogue and he began to teach them. And the people were amazed at his teaching. And they started showing up wherever Jesus showed up. After he taught in the synagogue, he went to Peter's place. And Peter, his mother-in-law was sick and so Jesus healed his mother-in-law. And pretty soon, everybody was at the door. They found out where he'd gone. He got up early, so early that no one was even awake the next morning so that he could go off and pray by himself, Mark 1.35. Peter and the others wake up sometime later and they go looking for him and they find him and they say, what are you doing? Everyone is looking for you. There's something about Jesus. Do you know him? There's something about Jesus. You can't, you can't just yawn in the face of Jesus. He either will offend you or you will fall down in worship and so we read and everybody just kept on coming I mean people with shriveled hands and lepers would come sinners tax collectors wealthy and poor people that were paralytics and lepers they'd come to Jesus some came because they knew maybe who he was and some because they just wanted to get what he had to give but they came and so Mark Mark is just so earnest. Every time we turn a page in Mark, someone else is coming to Jesus. And that's what the Gospel of Mark is about. Coming to Jesus and then figuring out, who do you say that I am? I want to leave with you the two questions that are at the bottom of your page. And in your life group this week, if you are part of a little group, or in your family devotions, or with a friend that you might talk with, I want you to discuss this question, these two questions. I want you to discuss, what is it about Jesus that draws me to Him? Put aside your theology and your, your, your statement of faith for a moment, what you were indoctrinated in. I'm not talking about some head knowledge now. I'm asking you to go into the inner chamber of your personal relationship with the Almighty, whatever that looks like, and ask yourself, what is it about Jesus that draws you to Him? And if you come up shy or thin on the answer, maybe you need to really give heed to this study in the Gospel of Mark to get to know Jesus really. And the second part of the question is, what is it about Jesus in me that draw the, draws others to him? How, how am I like John the Baptist that, that so presented Jesus that people could hardly wait to see him? And then one day when John was baptizing, he looked up and he said, look, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What is it about my life that makes others want to draw closer to Jesus? These are two questions that should take some time for you personally and for us to discuss together in smaller groups. Let's pray together.
Lord our God, we thank you so much for your word, the power of your word, the power of your son, oh God, Jesus. Do we really know you, Jesus? We, we, have to, we have to take off our shoes. We are on holy ground. And we have to ask ourselves whether we really have had a vision of you, Jesus, in all your authority and power. Oh God, I pray, we pray that this year you would show us, would you walk into our lives, would you tell us fresh and new, follow me. Would you give us the grace to respond, to leave our nets, and to follow you, Jesus. Would you give us that grace. We ask you, would you please meet with us in our fellowship around this Gospel of Mark. And as we do, Lord, may we be changed people. For we pray it in His name, for His glory, and for our good. Amen. People of God, go in His peace. Lord bless you.